Uh, my family loves food. We love to eat. We love to cook. I talk about this all the time. And so um, uh, a few years ago now, um, when Ros came to me and said, uh, I think we should buy a juicer with our credit card points, I was all in. I Straight away, I started to have visions of us drinking freshly squeezed juice in the morning. I had thoughts of making sorbets and panna cottas with juice that I'd, you know, that I'd squeezed myself. I, I had, had uh, this idea that our, our freezer could be full of, of a little, uh, little cubes, little ice cubes of fresh frozen juice that we could use in cooking and in drinks and whatever. And we bought the juicer. And the excitement lasted about three weeks, I reckon. It turns out that you need a lot of fruit and vegetables to make any decent amount of juice. It turns out that there's not as many recipes as I thought that need large volumes of fruit juice and vegetable juice. It turns out that I can't be bothered spending 15 minutes to make a glass of juice. Turns out that this brilliant juicer takes longer to clean than it does to make the juice each time that you use it. And so we still have the juicer sitting on our kitchen bench. Uh, its primary job is to stop our cutting boards from sliding over uh, on the bench. It's sort of the wedge that we stick our cutting boards between there and it, it holds them up. It does a beautiful job. It wasn't the juicer's fault. It's a great juicer. It's just that we weren't really fully committed to the idea of fruit juice. You know, we were kind of committed. I, 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 I heard the idea, I had the vision, I thought this could be really good, but I wasn't really fully committed. We started well, but we didn't have the commitment to make it last. And I bet you know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? It might not be a juicer, but I bet my juicer story reminds you of something in your life. Maybe there's an exercise machine sitting somewhere in your house gathering dust that was going to be the path to you getting fit and healthy. My brother-in-law has a guitar sitting in his house. He doesn't know how to play the guitar, but he bought a guitar because he really wanted to learn the guitar and it still sits in the corner of his room. I don't think he's ever played the guitar. Maybe you're one of those people that has half-read books sitting on your bedside at home, just waiting for you to finish it. Maybe my story reminds you of a sport that you played as a kid that you were really into, but then you, you sort of grew up and life gets in the way. And now every time you see that sport being played, you think, oh, I used to love that. I should get back into that. Maybe it reminds you of that time in your life when you had a young boyfriend or girlfriend and they were going to be the one and now you barely see them passing in the street. You know, that sort of stuff happens, doesn't it? Except for those people who are about to marry the young boyfriend and girlfriend. It's okay for you guys. <clears throat> one of my golf mates uh, used to play golf, and one of the guys that I uh, used to play golf with went to Queensland on a holiday and came back with a scorpion tattooed on his butt. <clears throat> Uh, he showed us. That's what guys do on a golf course. They <laughs> drop their pants on the second tee and show you their butt. And he showed us the scorpion on his butt. And he was really proud of this. You know, I've got a scorpion tattooed on my butt. He thought it was a great idea until one of our mates said, you know, when you're 60 and your butt sagged a bit, it's going to look like you've got a lobster on your behind. <laughs> like, just... 
It's really excited. It's really easy isn't it, to be excited about something in the moment <laughs> and then to kind of live with, you know, this is just not quite worked out the way that I hoped it would. It's true with commitments that we make. It's true with things that we buy. It's true with hobbies that we start. And, you know, it can even be true with our faith. It can even be true with our faith. And, and let's be honest, churches are full of people or full of people who are associated with churches who were once really sold out for Jesus. You know, they had a, they had a, a wow experience at an Easter camp or at some event or, or at some church service. And, and they were sure that a life with Jesus was going to be for them. They were going to be super committed. They were, they were going to be reading their, their Bible and praying every day. They were, going to be, they were going to be really into their church community. They were going to be a, you know, right at the core of their church. They were going to change the world in Jesus' name. And then life happens and now they're, they're not. They're a lot like King Asa in the Bible. Now, don't worry, you've never heard of King Asa in the Bible. No one's ever heard of King Asa in the Bible, just about. Um, there, is, there, is, there is no Veggie Tales video about the story of King Asa. Um, you never hear about him in Sunday school. He's not a Sunday school character. People like me who stand up, we hardly ever talk about King Asa. But I think that's a pity because his story is a really powerful story and it has a couple of really great lessons to teach us. So if, you're, uh, if you've got your Bible with you, we're going to start in 2 Chronicles 14. It's in the Old Testament, um, probably around about a, a third of the way through your Bible. There are, there are two books. There's a book of 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles. They're right next to each other and we are in the second of those in 2 Chronicles chapter 14. Let's go there and meet King Asa. King Asa became the king of Judah in about 905 BC. And King Asa, the Bible tells us, was a good king. 2 Chronicles 14, chapter 2 says it this way, Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He removed the foreign altars and the high places. He smashed the sacred stones and he cut down the Asherah poles. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to obey his laws and his commands. King Asa inherited a kingdom that was a mess. People had started to worship all kinds of other gods. And in the, in the temple of their god, the temple that had been built to God, that they'd brought in these other altars and they'd, they'd, they'd built these Asherah poles, kind of like a totem pole, if you've, if you've got that sort of image. These other symbols, these other, these other ways to worship other gods. People were doing whatever the heck they wanted. It was a crazy time. But King Asa was committed to God. And he clears house. He smashes stuff down. He throws stuff out. He refocuses everyone on what he believes is the one true God. It says the God of his fathers, the God that his nation had always worshipped. He sort of brings them back to that original idea of worship and of worshipping God. 
In our language, we might say that King Asa was on fire for God. And early in his reign, uh, as he's in the middle of this, his nation is attacked by the Cushites. Now, you've never heard of the Cushites. The Cushites were a nation that lived in the northern part of Africa, probably around um, the country that we call Ethiopia today. So you kind of look on your, uh, get an atlas, look on your phone, roughly where Ethiopia is. And they march northward toward the land of Judah and they attack them. 2 Chronicles 14, starting to read at verse 9. Zerah, and I don't know how to pronounce these names, or I'm just going to pick something and go with it. Um, Zerah the Cushite marched out against them with a vast army, with 300 chariots, and he came as far as Marashah. Asa went out to meet him, and they took up battle positions in the valley of Zepathar near Marashah. Then Asa called on the Lord his God, and said, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerful against the mighty. Sorry, to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you. And in your name we've come against this vast army. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against us. And then verse 12 says, The Lord struck down the Cushites before Asa and Judah. The Cushites fled and Asa and his army pursued them as far as Gerar. Such a great number of Cushites fell that they could not recover. They were crushed before the Lord and his forces. It's one of those inspiring stories. It's a great victory, isn't it? The Cushites come uh, to attack the nation of Judah and Asa stands on his faith. He stands on his commitment to God. He stands in front of the army, a much smaller army that is coming against them. And he prays, God, you are our God. We're going to rely on you. And I know we're way outnumbered, but, but you know we're going to trust that you are going to help the powerless against the mighty. We're going to march out in your name and trust that you're going to do something. And God brings them this great victory. They overcome this, this much bigger, much more powerful army. It's a story that sort of highlights King Asa's commitment and trust in God. It highlights God's power and faithfulness to his people. Asa goes on to uh, repair the temple. Uh, to get rid of idol worship almost kind of completely, to reintroduce the worship of God as the primary worship for the people of Judah. He's on his way to becoming a great king. And you can read all about it through the rest of uh, 2 Chronicles 14 and into chapter 15. It's all going really great until the Bible says in the 36th year of his reign. In the 36th year of his reign, Judah is attacked again, this time by the Israelite nation from the north. 2 Chronicles 16, chapter 1. In the 36th year of Asa's reign, Baasha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and fortified Ramah to prevent anyone from leaving or entering the territory of Asa the king, king of Judah. Asa took the silver and gold out of the treasuries of the Lord's temple and out of his own palace, and he sent it to Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, who was ruling in Damascus. He said, Let there be a treaty between me and you, as there was between my father and your father. See, I'm sending you silver and gold. 
Now break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so he will withdraw from me. Ben-Hadad agreed with King Asa and sent the commanders of his forces against the towns of Israel. They conquered Ejon, Dan, Abel-Maim, and all the store cities of Naphtali. When Baasha heard this, he stopped building Ramah and abandoned his work. Then King Asa brought all the men of Judah and they carried away from Ramah the stones and timber Baasha had been using. With them he built up Geba and Mizpah. This time Judah's attacked by a country from the north. They come and they, they, they start to build up this city or this area so that no one can leave. They're strengthening their position, preparing for a major attack. But Asa responds differently this time. Instead of, instead of taking his, his army out and standing before them and praying like he did before, he comes up with a new plan to recruit the neighbouring nation of Aram. And so he collects up all the gold and the silver that he can find and he basically pays off this guy. He pays off this guy and says, how about if I give you all this silver and gold, will you stop supporting them and will you start supporting us? Will you be like, like mercenaries for us, like an army for hire, if I give you all of this silver and gold? He said, let there be a treaty. Let there be a, you know, a, a kind of a treaty of peace. Let there be a treaty between me and you as there was between my father and your father. Make a treaty with us. Partner with us just like our fathers have partnered together. Now, what we don't know from here, but what you know if you've, if you've read the rest of two chronicles before this, is that King Asa's father, whose name was Abijah, was a terrible king. 1 Kings 15.3 says that Abijah committed all the sins his father had done before him. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. I mean... Abijah was the one who set up all of the idols that Asa spent all of his life tearing down, all of his life tearing down, right? He was the one who said, yeah, come and build these things here. Yeah, bring in these other gods. This is a cracking idea. Why does Asa now want to be like his father? Why does Asa want to go to the Arameans for help? Why doesn't Asa go to God for help like he did when the Cushites come, came and attacked him those years before. And then the prophet Hanani steps into the picture. Hanani's a man of God who lives in Judah and sometimes speaks the word of God to the king. And Hanani comes into the picture and he says this, 2 Chronicles 16 verse 7. At that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and he said to him, because you relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped your hand. Were not the Cushites and the Libyans a mighty army with great numbers of chariots and horsemen? Yet, when you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the land throughout the earth, to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You've done a foolish thing, and from now on, you will be at war. Asa was a good king. 
He was a good king who loved God and his leadership against the Cushites was bold and courageous and full of faith. But now Asa fails the fully devoted test. When he's challenged again, this time by the Israelites, he fails to trust in God. He fails to put God first. He fails to stay fully committed and fully devoted to God. Hanani says God is looking for people. His eyes are ranging throughout the earth, looking for people whose hearts are fully committed. It's a way of saying, and he didn't see you. He's saying God is actively looking for people, not just casually looking, not waiting for someone to approach him. God is actively looking for people who are fully committed to him. And Asa failed that test. And I want to suggest to you that I think that God is still actively looking for people whose hearts will be fully committed to him today. King Asa's story reminds us that commitment to God isn't a one-off event. It's not something you do once at a camp or, or, or at kid or as a kid or at Sunday school or at church or something. Because King Asa started well, didn't he? He was all committed and he was all fired up and, and he was all, you know, God, me and God, you know, I'm going to put God first. But he failed to maintain that commitment. He failed to stay committed to God. His commitment to God, if you like, it faded away. And we can all be like that, can't we? Like I can be like that. I'm pretty sure you can be like that. You know, we start strong like me with my juicer. But then life gets in the way and our commitment to God fades. Our devotion to God becomes, well, like not very devoted We put our trust in the things of the world instead of our trust in the God who created the world. Because let's be honest, we live in a world that that sort of teaches us that there's like levels of commitment to God. Right? And the base level is that you believe there's a God. There's lots of people who don't believe there's a God, right? But, But if you believe in God, you believe there's a God, well, that's kind of the base level. You know, then you get to call yourself a Christian, right? And, you know, but then there's levels above that. Like if you go to church, like not just when you feel like it occasionally, but sort of regularly, well, that's like leveling up. If you read the Bible, you know, kind of regularly, not every day, but, you know, most days, that's like a level up. If you pray most days, that's a level up. If you volunteer for something, right? If you serve somewhere in your church, that's a level up. If you give money to your church, whew, that's a big level up, right? I mean, no one says it like that, but that's kind of how we think, isn't it? And I want to say to you, that is not what Jesus taught about faith at all. That, that, that's not how the writers of the Bible talked about Christian faith at all. That's not how the early church, how the first Christians that we read about, that's not how they lived out their faith at all. To be a Christian in the first century 
was to be totally devoted to God. They didn't understand the idea of a kind of half-hearted Christian. There were no levels as far as they concerned was concerned. There was not a Christian and there was a full-on Christian. There was nothing in between. The only way to follow Jesus, Jesus himself would say, would be to love Jesus with all of your heart and with all of your soul, with all of your mind and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. Mark 12:30. Romans 8:32 reminds us that God gave everything for us. Even sacrificed his own son for us. And so for the early Christian church, they saw their faith as a, as a response to what God had done for us. And so in their minds, it was pretty simple. If God's given everything to us, then the only thing for us to do would be to give what? Everything back to God. It wouldn't make sense to live life any other way, would it? Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you. It's his way of saying the only place for God really is first in your life. Not second or third or, you know, equal fourth. The, the, only, the only place really to have God in your life is first place. John was one of Jesus' followers, what we call his disciples. John had a vision of Jesus much later in his life where Jesus said these words about a church that John was speaking to. Jesus said, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Revelation 3.15. When Jesus talks about money to someone, he says, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. He's saying, and when it comes to money, but I'm sure it relates to other things, you can't have it both ways. Like it's all or nothing. There's There's no sort of middle ground here. You've got to love one and he says sort of hate the other or hate one and love the other. Luke remembers when a wealthy young guy came to see Jesus and asked him this question. Uh, This is uh, Luke. Uh, Luke says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the commands, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, etc., etc., And the young man says, I've kept all of these commands. You know, I'm doing good. And Jesus told him, you still lack one thing, sell everything you own and give it to the poor. And then you'll have treasure in heaven. And then there's this great little line that says, but when the ruler, when the young ruler heard this, he became very sad because he had because he was extremely wealthy. Jesus tests the young man by giving him an opportunity, if you like, a prompt to give everything to God. Because the young man says, I'm doing pretty well, you know, I'm levelling up, I've done this and this and this and this. 
But God knew the one thing that he didn't want to give away. He wanted to follow Jesus, but he just wanted to hold a little bit back. You know, isn't 80% good enough? Can I just, you know, 20%? I'm really kind of fond of this. But if I give you 80%, is that good enough? And I want to tell you, I think Jesus is asking us the same question, all of us, the same question. And maybe it's not your wealth. Maybe for you it's your career or your family or your health or your hobbies. But I believe that Jesus looks at all of us and asks, are you willing to put me first before everything? Are you willing to trust me with everything? Are you willing to be totally devoted to me? The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Now, I want to say, this isn't a guilt trip. Um, I'm not trying to make anyone feel like you're not doing enough or you've got to do more. Hopefully, the last seven weeks in Galatians, hopefully, um, have convinced us the error of trying to impress God by doing lots of things and tick lots of boxes, right? I hope we've got there. I just want to challenge us with what it means to really follow Jesus. And I want to challenge this this sort of worldly idea that you can have a little bit of God and that's okay. You know, everything in moderation. You know, a lot of people say that we kind of live like that, don't we? Everything in moderation. You don't want to be too you don't want to be too full on for anything. You know, bit of uni in moderation, that's fine, but you've got to you've got to keep life balanced. You know, a bit of exercise in moderation, but you don't want to be one of those, you know, crazy, you know, crazy fit people. You know, everything in moderation. Eat whatever you want, moderation. You can drink a bit, yeah, that's fine, everything in moderation. Faith, yeah, that's good, that's good. But, you know, you've got to keep everything in moderation. For 2,000 years, followers of Jesus have been reading scripture and praying daily. And sometimes we call that our daily devotion. You ever heard that phrase, a daily devotion? It comes from the idea, it's an expression that comes from the idea that that those things, to read scripture daily, to pray daily, that they are an expression of our devotion to Jesus. That is how how we kind of show our devotion to Jesus. Except that now if you go into a Christian bookstore, and these are actual titles, I look these up, you go into a Christian bookstore, you can buy books that say 15 minutes alone with God. Five minutes with Jesus, making today matter. This is true. These are actual books in Christian bookstores. The the promises that you can be devoted to Jesus in just five minutes a day. Awesome. You've got the whole rest of the day to do whatever you want. But if you just just give God five minutes a day. There are a few of us in the room who are married. Few of us have boyfriends and girlfriends. Imagine saying to someone, imagine a friend comes to you and says, just got a new girlfriend, new boyfriend. How's it going? It's good. I text them once a day. Well, most days, you know, some days it's a bit busy, I don't get around to it. But my goal is to text them once a day. It takes me about five minutes. What would you say to that person? Right? Prepare to be single again, wouldn't you? Right? <laughs> That's not going to work. That's, that's not the kind of devotion that it takes to build a relationship, does it? 
Yeah, let's be really honest. That's exactly what some of us do with Jesus, isn't it? Got my five minutes a day, tick it off. Now, that's done. I'm all good. Now I can just go and do whatever the heck I want. God has given everything for you. I mean, do you you ever think about it? Every day that you wake up, every time that your eyes open from sleep and it's a new day, that is a gift from God. Every time that you inhale and oxygen fills your lungs, you are breathing in the goodness of God to you. The very breath in your lungs is a gift from a God who created you and loves you. And God is looking for people who are 100% committed to him in response to his goodness to us. He's looking for people who will trust him with everything. Not 50%, not 60%, not 80%. He's looking for people who will give everything to him, who will be totally devoted to him. Next week's Easter. It's the annual celebration for Christian people of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. There is absolutely no question that Easter is the number one date on the Christian calendar. No question about that. Beats Christmas and anything else, hands down. Yet many people who believe in God are more excited about having four days off work than they are about celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. I'm not trying to be harsh, it's just the truth. There are some people who won't even be at the resurrection celebration because they'll be off taking a holiday somewhere. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't holiday, and I want to be really careful here. I'm not saying it's about... I'm just saying, priority-wise, when you look at Easter, what's the first thing that comes into your mind? You know, are you building Easter around the opportunity to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, or have you built it around a holiday or a time off or whatever else? I'm not trying to offend anyone. I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty. And I'm certainly not suggesting that I'm, you know, I got it all together here. I'm just trying to get us to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be fully devoted to Jesus? You know, we've written up here every week that our sort of mission or our purpose is to be people who follow Jesus. And see those words at the bottom? Wherever we are, no matter the cost. That's our way of saying that our goal, our hope, our dream here at Tide is that this church would be a community of people who are fully devoted to Jesus. It's not to say that we're there. It's not to say that you, know, you have to, to tick a box before you can come. It's saying that's our goal. That's what we're kind of working toward. None of us are there. We're not perfect yet. We never will be. But that's the goal that we're, that's, that's sort of the, that's the target that we're holding up and saying, that's where we're headed. That's the kind of people that we're aiming to be. And this is about inviting you into that 
kind of life, a, a life that is given, that is fully given to Jesus. A life that trusts him in everything. A life that would follow him anywhere, whatever the cost. To put him first in all areas of your life and to do that in a way that says, God, I'll give everything to you and then to wait and see what God will do. Because it will take time. It will cost money. NGL, not going to lie. I learned that from my 15-year-old. That's the thing you say now. Not going to lie. Right? It will take your time. It will take your money. But God's promise and the history of the Christian church is that it is worth it. King Asa's years of full commitment to his God brought blessing and peace to him and to his kingdom. His years of half-hearted commitment brought war. Jesus invites us, Jesus invites us to daily give him everything. He invites us to trust him totally, to be totally devoted to him. And when we do, it opens the way in our life for us to experience love and joy and peace and hope. Do you remember, it was only last week we were talking about the fruit of the Spirit. So when we walk with God, this is the life, this is the life that full devotion opens the way for us. And like I said, it's not about making anyone feel guilty. It's not about saying you don't, you, you don't measure up yet. This is just about us recognising that God has given everything to us. And it's an invitation to say, will we give everything we are, everything we have, everything we dream, everything we hope, will we give that back to God? Or will we up, end up being like that rich young ruler who would go away sad because we just weren't willing to give up the last bit? 